0: As you're turning to Exodus chapter 4, please remember the words of Jesus when he said that the thief came not but to steal and kill and destroy. But I am come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood. Because of the circumcision. May God bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to see that even in the strangeness of this passage, that we have a God who remembers covenant even when we forsake it. Help us to see the God who commands his blessings to a thousand generations. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. Our, admitted, our administrative assistant, Bridget, um, she's not feeling well this morning, but she's super good at making those... Uh, worksheets that many of you children are working on right now um, has activities to keep you you know engaged with the message and I got a text from her this week expressing that she was finding it difficult to find a coloring picture because the the two choices were Rahab the prostitute which was the memory verse and then this bloody foreskin which is our passage I sent her a picture of the, of the latter, but she chose the former. <laughs> now, the truth is, is that I would have been delighted if our kids were coloring bloody foreskins this morning. And the, the reason why is because as gruesome as that sounds, uh, it tells us some of the most wonderful truths about God. Um, first, it would tell us the truth that God loves our children. God loves our children. They are his children by covenant. They don't belong to the world, they belong to him, and he has given us wonderful assurance of this by commanding that we put a mark of ownership, his mark of ownership, upon them. Circumcision in the Old Testament, baptism in the New. And I I think this helps answer uh, one of the greatest fears that parents have, which is, "Does God love my children?" And our passage this morning answers with a resounding yes. He's brought them into the covenant. We're going to flesh that out in in a little bit, but let that truth hit you from the very beginning. God has included Abraham's children. He included Moses's children. And he includes your children in his covenant. Secondly, bloody foreskins tell us the truth about the gospel. Every time a little Hebrew boy would go pee, he saw a story on his own body about Jesus the Messiah would have to be cut off. He would have to be made bloody in order for that little boy to be saved. That's what the prophet said, Isaiah 53, 8, that Jesus was cut off from the land of the living, or Paul in Colossians. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So that little Hebrew boy, whether he was aware of it or not, saw Christ in his circumcision. The bloody foreskin was Christ. And that's why Yahweh threatened Moses' life in our passage this morning. Um, in denying circumcision to his son, Moses was, number one, denying God's ownership of his son. And then number two, Moses was erasing the gospel in his son's flesh. That's what I hope to prove this morning. Here is our big idea. Believers' children belong to the Lord, and he would have us put his covenantal mark of ownership and sacrifice upon them. So let's begin then with our... Doctrine. Now, if we go back to chapter 4, uh, the beginning of chapter 4, uh, since the beginning, uh, we see that Moses has been a hot mess. Um, he objects three times to the Lord sending him back to Egypt in verses 1 through 17. Then last time we were together, uh, Yahweh graciously helped Moses overcome his fear Uh, by telling him that all of the opposition that he was going to face in Egypt wasn't going to be because of Satan. Satan wasn't in control. Pharaoh wasn't in control. It was God Almighty that was in control. He was the one that was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. This morning we see Moses' hot mess turning into a dumpster fire. The human redeemer of Israel at this point is in need of redemption himself. So let's look at verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Now, Moses and his family are making camp for the night. They're traveling from Midian to to Egypt And we know from verse 20 that he brought his whole family along with him. So he had two sons. Uh, Exodus 18, 3 and 4 tells us the names of those two sons. Gershom, he is the oldest. And Eleazar, he is the youngest. Now his wife Zipporah, if you remember, was a Midianite. Uh, and, And though the Midianites had descended from Abraham's second wife, Genesis 25, it seems that the Midianites wanted nothing to do with circumcision. At least, Zipporah wanted nothing to do with circumcision. We can deduce that from her response. After the deed was done here, what does she do? She calls her husband a bridegroom of blood. It's not exactly a term of endearment, I'm sure... That you wives would not look over your husband gazingly in the evening on your pillow and say, oh, you're such a bridegroom of blood to me. This was, a, this was an insult. It was a true insult, but it was an insult. She was angry. Apparently, Moses and Zipporah had a serious disagreement over how to raise their boy religiously. And I think Calvin is spot on when he imagined what took place in their family. So to paraphrase Calvin, um, when Gershom, their first boy, was born, Moses obeyed the command that God had given Abraham, and he circumcised his son on the eighth day, Genesis 17, 12. Now, presumably, when Zipporah saw this, she was horrified at this practice. And so she disputed with her husband so fiercely that when Eliezer, um, their second son, was born, um, Moses abandoned his duty to circumcise. So here they are on their way to Egypt. One son, Gershom, is circumcised, and the other, Eliezer, is not. And Yahweh shows up to kill Moses for failing to obey him. Now Moses, at this point, uh, seems to be incapacitated either because of unbridled terror or some uh, plague of paralysis brought on by the divine because Moses does nothing. But Zipporah does. Look with me at verse 25. Then Zipporah took a flit, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it, and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Now, I doubt that any of you husbands have had such quite a domestic dispute as this. I mean, this is like the fight of all fights. I mean, just imagine it. You know, Eliezer is screaming on the ground. Zipporah has blood all over her hands, and she throws or touches this foreskin against Moses' feet, and he says, and she name calls Adam. I love it when the Bible is so realistic about marriage sometimes. Isn't that what our marriages look like sometimes? Zipporah knew why Yahweh was there. Either the Lord told her what was the problem, or the Holy Spirit illuminated her mind. Either way, she knew that God was going to kill her husband because they had disobeyed. So she quickly performed this covenant surgery, and she touched the bloody part against Moses' feet. Why Moses' feet? Well, it's like what we heard in our confessional time this morning. Moses was a true believer. Hebrews 11 says so. He didn't need his whole person cleansed again Um, He just needed his walk cleansed. Yahweh was not threatening eternal death here. He was threatening temporal death. Moses was walking in disobedience, and therefore Zipporah touched his feet with um, the blood, thus symbolically purifying his walk. Remember that blood is the only thing that can take away sins. Uh, Hebrews 9.22, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Now, Yahweh is satisfied here with Moses' and Zipporah's apparent repentance, even as imperfect as it was. Um, We can deduce that from verse 26 because Moses says, So he let him alone. Yahweh let Moses alone. The blood was shed and Yahweh was propitiated. His wrath was appeased. Now, after the danger was abated, Zipporah, uh, we see Zipporah's name calling being repeated again at the, verse, at the end of verse 26, so twice. It says, it was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, just as a side note, um, many commentators think that it was after this incident that Moses sent Zipporah and her sons back to Midian because they actually don't make it back. To Egypt. In Exodus 18-2, the next time we see them is when Jethro brings them to meet Moses in the wilderness. At any rate, it's clear that though Zipporah did this covenant surgery, she was offended at the act of circumcision. Our text twice repeats the name that she calls Moses. You bridegroom of blood. And it tells us why. Because of the circumcision. And so we desperately need to know what circumcision is. What is circumcision? Well, literally, the Hebrew means to cut off. Um, The act is physical, uh, but the meaning is spiritual. In Genesis 17, 10 through 11, where circumcision is first instituted, God tells Abraham, that circumcision is a sign of the covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. In other words, circumcision signifies that a relationship has been established between God and his people. Listen to what uh, L. Michael Morales says here. Quote, Circumcision was a sign and seal of one's membership In the congregation of Israel, symbolizing the removal of defilement, it requires the shedding of blood. Positively, circumcision functions to seal a new identity. As Abram's circumcision came with his name change to Abraham, Israel's sons are put under the knife as part of their membership among the people of God, while spared from death, these sons figuratively died to the world through circumcision, the removal of defilement, and are identified as those who belong among the congregation of Israel. End quote. Now, just as a side note, it's not a problem at all that circumcision was done only with males because husbands and fathers... Um, represented their entire household. So their whole household was under the sign. Um, But you must understand this. You have to get this part. God's aim was to mark his people with a sign that he owned them. Circumcision was a visible promise that God was their God and he was their people. Circumcision was the mark of ownership that God is jealous for his people. Children, boys and girls, when you come into possession of some treasure, um, what do you do to mark that, to make sure that everybody knows that it's yours? You write your name on it. Or, or when you, you draw a beautiful picture or write a beautiful story, what do you do so that people know it's yours? You, you write your name on it. Don't you see that, that circumcision is the Lord writing his name on Israel. It was his way of saying, these people are mine. A sign of the covenant between you and me and your offspring after you. Now it's precisely at this point, uh, why we see God angry enough to kill Moses. It's a curious thing. Moses had already provoked the Lord to anger back in verse 14 because he kept on objecting and he kept on disbelieving God's power. But there, God did not threaten his life. Um, But here, when... Moses refused to circumcise his son, death is threatened. Why the difference? Because Moses denied Yahweh, covenant ownership of his children. He denied the king his kids. And as one commentator, Phil Riken, puts it, he says, If Moses intended to serve the God of Abraham, he had a covenant obligation to circumcise his sons. How could he command obedience to God from Pharaoh while not yielding to it himself. So, we arrive then at our doctrine this morning. And it's just this, that believer's children belong to the Lord. And he would have us to put his covenantal mark of ownership and sacrifice upon them. And no doubt at this point, some of our beloved Baptist brothers and sisters are going to call foul that sleight of hand. Uh, this is Old Testament and, and, you know, this is New Testament and thing, things are different now. And I would just simply say, let's look at what the scripture says. Has God ever in the Bible given up his ownership of the children of believers? I would submit to you that without equivocation, the scripture insists that our children belong to him covenantally. Uh, Not that they all belong to him salvifically, but they all absolutely belong to him covenantally. Consider four proofs from scripture in both the New and the Old Testament that our children belong to the Lord. So proof number one, the covenants. Proof number one is from the covenants. In every single redemptive covenant in scripture, God claims the children of those he is covenanting with. So you can quickly write these down if you'd like. Genesis 9, 8 through 9. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. To Abraham, Genesis 17, 7. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. Moses, to the children of of Israel, Deuteronomy 29, 10 through 12. You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God. All the men of Israel and your little ones. So that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God. To David. Psalm 89, three through four. I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build up your throne for all generations. In every single covenant, God claims ownership of our children. So, so dare we assume that all of a sudden when the new covenant comes around, that's built on better promises that God no longer lays claim upon our children? Joel Beeky says here, quote, it's unthinkable that in the fullness of the gospel era that the children of the New Testament church would have less of a place in the covenant than children of Old Testament Israel. Proof number two, the prophets. Proof number two, the prophets. Please turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 20 and 21. Here in Ezekiel 16, you see that the subtitle at the beginning of this chapter says, The Lord's Faithless Bride. And here, God is rebuking the idolaters in Israel for sacrificing their children to to demons. And why is God so furious? Well, precisely because he calls their children his children, Ezekiel sixteen twenty through twenty one, and you took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? He calls them his children. Next turn to Malachi chapter 2 verse 15, last book before the New Testament. Malachi 2:15, what is one of the main reasons why God is so jealous for Christian marriages? Well, he tells us here, Malachi 2:15, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. God wants godly marriages because he wants our children to be godly. He wants them to belong to him. Proof number three, Jesus himself. Proof number three, Jesus himself. Please turn to Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. Now, this is the dawn of the new covenant. And if there were ever a time for God to make it clear that he no longer lays claim on our children, it's here. But Jesus does the exact opposite. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, it says, and they, the, the people, were bringing children, Luke 18, 15 calls them infants, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands upon them. These were infants who could not yet profess faith in Christ, and Jesus rebukes the disciples for keeping them away. Why? Because the children of the covenant belonged to him. And he even showed his love. I mean, what what a picture. Jesus scooping up these children and holding them in his arms and blessing them and praying over them. Proof number four the apostles. Please turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 39. Here, Peter proclaims that the new covenant is just like the old covenant in this sense that our children are also included. Acts chapter 2, verse 39, he says, For this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Prior to Peter's sermon, there was 2,000 year history of of children being included in the covenant, if there was ever a time to make that switch, you would be here. And yet the Holy Spirit inspires this apostle to reinforce God's, owner, God's ownership of covenant children. This promise is for you and your children. One more place, First uh, Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. 1 Corinthians 7.14 here, Paul is talking about mixed marriages, that is, a believer and an unbeliever due to one of, the believer, or one of the spouses getting saved and the other one not, and so he's trying to tell them how to act in these marriages. And he says something surprising. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by, because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. He doesn't mean that they are holy salvifically. He means they are holy covenantally. The apostle of Christ here insists that our children have a different status than the children of the world. He looks at our children and he says, mine. That's They're holy. They're set apart. So it's clear from both the old and the new that the Lord is jealous for our children. He claims them as his own. And what follows from that? Well, what follows is that we should write his name on our children. In the Old Testament, that was... Circumcision and the new, that's baptism. And that's our doctrine, that our children belong to the Lord. And he's jealous to put his mark upon them. So then let's look at our duty. And here's where it gets super controversial. Like it wasn't already, right? First duty is to answer a couple of objections. Objections. Someone might ask here, Pastor Josh, are you saying that Baptists who refuse to baptize their babies are sinning like Moses sinned and that the Lord is angry with them? How do we answer that? I mean, um, if you look in our Confession of Faith, when it talks about baptizing babies, it actually uses this passage to justify the proof texts. So our Baptists who refuse to baptize their baby, are they sinning in the same way that Moses sinned? Is God angry with them? Well, first of all, I just wanna say that as Christians, we are not relativists. We are not postmodern. Presbyterians should not say to Baptists, well, your truth is your truth, and Baptists should not say to Presbyterians, my truth is my truth. That's not how we handle passages in scripture. Um, Someone is in error, either Presbyterians or Baptists, um, and this error is at the very least a hidden fault or a hidden sin, Psalm nineteen twelve. Moses, on the other hand, he knew the truth and he disobeyed it, and that is a presumptuous sin on Moses' part, and it's a greater sin than someone who has a misinformed conscience. Um, so if a Baptist refuses to give the covenant sign to their children because they are genu- genuinely persuaded that Scripture says otherwise, then their sin is not the same as Moses. Romans 14.5 says that everyone should be fully convinced in his own mind. But this is where I, I, I really want to challenge you, my beloved Baptist friend. What part of the doctrine that we just went over did you disagree with? Do you you not think that the scripture abundantly proves that our children belong to the Lord? What scriptures would you bring forward uh, to, to show that your children now do not belong to him? I know that, that some of you have truly studied this subject and you've read and you've read and you've read and you've come to a different conclusion than I have, but others of you have not studied it. Um, you act, some of you have not been good Bereans, some of you have not obeyed Paul where it says test everything. You've just accepted the traditions of your parents or the first church that you walked into. And I I would just plead with you, like, don't dismiss this doctrine with a wave of the hand and and a flippant attitude. Um, Study these things. Press into them. There's a great resource in the foyer called Infant Baptism, How My Mind Has Changed by Dennis Johnson. We always get great fruit from studying the scriptures. So pick it up and wrestle with it. Now, on the other hand, if you're a Baptist and you, you heard all those proofs that demonstrate that our children do in fact belong to the Lord, and you believe that, well then it just naturally follows that you should mark them with baptism. Um, if you're convinced that your children belong to them, then write your name upon them. Our second objection is, someone may ask the question, But if we give our children the sign of the covenant, then isn't that presumptive regeneration? Aren't you saying, Pastor Josh, that they are saved or they definitely will be saved? My answer is no. Um, Sadly, children can break out of the covenant. That's what uh, Romans 11 teaches. If they don't believe the gospel, they're cut off. But, but here's the thing, um, my beloved Baptist friends, if you deny that our children belong to the Lord, then I actually don't know how you deal with the theology of Romans 11. Paul teaches us that there are two ways to belong to the Lord Jesus. Abraham belonged to God through faith. He was the root. And his children belonged to God through birth. They were the branches. So, because the root was holy, so are the branches. Uh, Romans eleven sixteen. So, you can't affirm Paul's theology consistently if you deny that the children of believers belong to God, because because Paul takes that theology and then applies it to us. So that brings us then to our second duty: to consider carefully why this matters. Why does God want to mark our children? How does baptizing our children benefit them more than the child of an unbeliever who is not baptized? It is true that the children of unbelievers, that if they even hear the gospel, that they are given a general promise that if they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be saved. But here's the thing. Covenant children have an additional promise. Um, Covenant children have a general promise and they have a specific promise sealed to them in baptism. Children of unbelievers, if they hear the gospel, they only get the promise from the word, but children of believers get the gospel in the word and they get the gospel in the sacrament. Francis Turretin says here, quote, the word is addressed promiscuously to all men but the sacraments single out individuals and far more powerfully and efficaciously move the heart. So God gives covenant children a double portion. So just like the little Hebrew boy, he heard the gospel with his ears, but he also saw the gospel every time he went to the bathroom in his circumcision. And so covenant children have the gospel in their ears and promise to them... Um, In their baptism. And so, here's what you can tell your child. If you have baptized your children, this is what you can say. You can say, son, daughter, God has said that you already belong to him. He sets you apart from the children of this world. Believe on him. Believe on his name. Call upon him. Lay hold of his promises. He's given you the sign and seal of baptism that if you do, he will most certainly wash away your sins, and give you the righteousness of Christ. That's why it matters. It's a great aid to help your children believe the gospel, to give them confidence and joy that God has open arms of love to them. That brings us then to our last duty, which which is warning. You can't preach a passage like this and not see the warning in it. So first, a warning to husbands and fathers. So this is regardless if you have baptized your child or not, brothers. Regardless if you're Baptist or Presbyterian. If God was angry at Moses for failing to give his son the sign, how much more will he be angry at fathers who fail to raise their children in a godly manner? Just heartbroken this week, listening to a mother tell me married for 20some years. Tell me about how their her husband, their father, of their kids, just checked out, didn't engage, ate by himself, didn't help put the kids to bed, didn't do family worship. said he was a Christian. Participated in church. Totally checked out. Fathers, husbands, God gave you your children for his sake. For his sake that he might make his glory known on the earth. And he charged every one of us, fathers and husbands, with this command. This charge is on all of us. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Brothers, are you raising your children in the Lord? Do you know what is going on in your house from day to day? Can you say with Joshua of old, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Are you obeying God in raising your children? Or are you caving? Are you caving to unbiblical influences, whether it be your wife or, or from culture? Be warned from Moses' example here. God is closely watching your home. Shouldn't we draw that away from the passage? God knew what was going on in their home and he came to Moses and he confronted him. Does he not see what's going on in your home? Second warning to wives and to mothers. Sisters, Zipporah is held up here as a negative example. Uh, What did she do wrong? She argued with her husband and she pressured him to not obey the Lord. Sisters, are you doing that with your husbands? Are you hindering him from leading the home in a godly way? Sisters, you were made to be his helpmate. Don't don't work against him. Zipporah worked against her husband and it almost undid her family. Be warned by her example. God wants your husband to obey him more than he wants him to cater to your wishes. And you should want a husband like that. Third, a warning to unbelievers. Dear unbelieving friend, Why was Zipporah offended at this circumcision? Because circumcision is a visible sign of what belonging to God requires. He requires blood. God doesn't accept you because you're a good person. In fact, the scripture says that no one does good, not even one. Only the blood of the eternal covenant can make you right with God. And may God give you ears to hear now what that precious blood is. So let's look finally then at our delight section. Twice in our passage, we hear Zipporah call her husband a bridegroom of blood, twice. In order for Moses to be saved, blood had to be shed and it had to be his son's blood. It's why she called him a bridegroom of blood. But Zipporah, thank God, was saying more than she knew. Isn't it amazing how this domestic disturbance preaches the gospel so amazingly clear to us? There was a greater bridegroom that was to come. John the Baptist preached of him. Isaiah preached of him. Jesus preached preached of him and said, that is me. And this bridegroom wouldn't merely be circumcised in his flesh as Eleazar was. He was circumcised body and soul at Calvary. It was his blood, his being cut off from the land of the living that has propitiated God's wrath from our everlasting souls. Moses was saved by temporal death by the shed blood of his son. But but beloved, we are saved from the eternal death, from the shed blood of God's only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter five, verse nine says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You see why that bloody foreskin is so precious. That's what you can claim to get into heaven. Christ, cut off for you, pleading the blood. Our great bridegroom of blood is Christ. And and that's what we're going to partake of in the supper this morning. The very words instituted the Lord's Supper. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And this is precisely why the sacrament is changed. From bloody cutting in the Old Testament to a bloodless washing in the new. No more blood needs to be shed. Now that our Savior has been crucified. Hebrews 10.10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So just as the little Hebrew boy could see the sacrifice of the Messiah in his circumcision, we can now see The finished work of Christ in our baptism. We're clean. We're cleansed. It's finished. The last drop of blood for our redemption was shed 2,000 years ago on the cross. And it's just here, beloved, that we can find a great encouragement for our homes. If you find yourself failing, husband. If you find yourself resisting your husband, wives, it's here where we can find great encouragement. Here. Christ's shed blood is not only for the saving of our soul, it's also for the cleansing of your walk. Moses and Zipporah were failing as parents. Their feet had become polluted. But when they repented, the blood was applied to Moses' feet, and God blessed him, and he turned away his fatherly displeasure. And then Moses, for the rest of the book, goes on to complete his mission. Brothers and sisters, you can complete your mission for life. God is not done with you, though you may have failed in your duties as husband and father, as wife, as mother. If you failed in this respect then turn back to the Lord and, and trust in the promise that His blood makes your path clean. You can still complete the race. This is what Paul says in Philippians 3, 12-14. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Have you failed? Well, good news, Christ Jesus has still made you his own. Turn back to him. Let his blood be applied to your feet. Let his blood be applied to your path. Brothers, I do not consider it that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind me and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Here's the charge. Look to your bridegroom of blood. Walk in the light as he is in the light. And the blood of Jesus will cleanse you from all sin.